0: What is white privilege? White privilege is not saying your life has not been hard. It's simply saying your skin color hasn't contributed to the difficulty of your life. As a white person, surely your life has been hard as anyone's life has been hard, but it is not your whiteness that is making your life hard. Whereas for most black people, it is in fact their blackness that makes their lives hard. I'll end that with empirical data. A 2017 study showed two people, Alec, equal resumes. The person with the white-sounding name is twice as likely to get the job as a person with the black-sounding name.
1: I'm Ilaria Baldwin.
2: And I'm Alec Baldwin.
1: And this is our podcast, What's One More? I'd been hearing about you from many people, one from my friend Yvette Corcoran, who works on Extra, and I used to work with her on Extra for years. She's one of my best friends. And she was like... This guy, Emmanuel, he gets it. He says it in like the most clear, simple, heartfelt. Like it's just such a like a rush of, oh my gosh, this man can change the world. And then I saw you on Ellen and I was like, yes, you are right. You're right. Because you're saying, I mean, for us in any issues that we're having, it's all about communication. I think so many people are unwilling to communicate Afraid to communicate, afraid to have the uncomfortable conversations, as you so perfectly put it. And so first I want to understand how did you come to this very simple but brilliant concept? And then how did you have the ability to have that uncomfortable conversation with the world?
0: Um, well, one, Alec, Alaria, great to be with you all, although virtually. Um, great to great to be joined by you. So, Alaria, so many people have asked me, they said, Emmanuel. What was your inspiration behind Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man? Before it was a book, before it was a youth adaptation, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Boy, it was a video series. And I I respond like this, Hilaria. There was no inspiration. There was a devastation. See, you can be inspired to create something or you can be devastated into creating something. Either way, something ends up created. After the murder of George Floyd, I, like so many, was trying to figure out what in the world can I do? Posting a black square on my Instagram page was not enough. If you all recall Blackout Tuesday, it wasn't enough. It seemed too performative. So I I thought about it, Larry, and I said my voice is my sword. Alec, true story, I never went out and marched, I've never been out and protested, I haven't painted any signs. Instead of going outside, I went inside to a studio that I paid for myself and um I reached out to my my best friend who's an Olympic medalist and a wedding videographer. Again, true story. There was no high production team, no amazing Emmy award-winning staff. There was me, a 100-meter sprinter a wedding videographer, and his wife in an all-white room, malaria. And I had rehearsed with one of my friends. Um, and remember, uncomfortable conversations with a Black man, not uncomfortable monologue with a Black man. Right. So in the first episode, when I'm sitting by myself, staring at a lens, why in the world am I sitting by myself? Because a dear friend of mine in the last moment had a change of heart. Her and I had rehearsed it together. She was going to ask the questions. I was going to answer them, Alec. But right before, an hour and four minutes before our call time, she had a change of heart. And so that is why, Hilaria, I end up doing it myself. I answered four questions. Why are Black people rioting? Why can Black people say the N-word but white people can't? What is this concept of white privilege? And what about Black-on-Black crime in Chicago? Why did I answer those four questions? Because I grew up in white spaces. And in these white spaces, I went to the number one private school in Dallas, Texas called St. Mark's School of Texas, a college preparatory school. We wore uniform. That's in high school. I went there from fifth grade to 12th grade. So I was immersed in white culture, Larry. And so I knew the murmurs of questions um, that people were asking. And I preemptively wanted to answer them because I know so many of my white brothers and sisters either A, didn't have Black people they felt comfortable asking these questions to, or B, um, were too afraid to ask the questions. Before you know it, I released Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, episode one. Five days later, we have 25 million views. I get a call from a no-caller ID number. Again, true story. Everything I'm telling you is true. No fabrication. I get a call from a no-caller ID number, Alec. I pick it up because that's what I do with no-caller ID numbers. And all I hear is this. Acho McConaughey speaking. I want to have a conversation. I'm like, McConaughey? Like, Matthew McConaughey? Um, and he's like, yeah, let's, let's talk. I said, well, I'm recording episode two in four days. He said, let's do it tomorrow. said, McConaughey wants to do it tomorrow. We do it tomorrow. Um, I record episode two with Matthew McConaughey the next day. I got a call from Oprah roughly four days later. We hop on FaceTime. I tell her I'm writing a book. She says, books? I love books. Um, we we partnered to write the book and Alaria, um, the rest is history. After turning it into a youth adaptation, here I am with you and Alan.
2: What were the answer to the four questions, if you don't mind my asking?
0: <laughs> um, well, the first answer is go watch the video. The second answer is- um,
2: <laughs> Well done. Well uh, done.
0: Man, if I could do it concisely. So True story, Alec. Again, I say true story because so often people hear things like this and they're like, that's not really how it happened. Alec, I didn't edit the video. I put my head down. I said, three, two, and one. I opened up my eyes, stared into the lens of the camera, and for nine minutes and 27 seconds, I just empathized and poured out my heart. So the answers to the questions, which I answered in nine minutes, 27 seconds, I will try to answer concisely. Um... Why are the protests occurring? When you move down stages of grief, there are five stages of grief is kind of clinically diagnosed. You get to a stage called anger. And I felt like as a country, we were collectively grieving. I told the story of my mother when I was 12 years old. I came out the room on on the way to school one day. I came out my room getting dressed and I see my mom is weeping and she's throwing herself into a wall, Alec. And I'm like, I can't process. Mom, why are you crying? Number one. And two, why does it appear you're trying to inflict injury on yourself, my dad had whispered to me, hey, your mother's sister has just died. Mm-hmm. You see, my mom's emotions didn't know how to express themselves. Similarly, it felt as though as a country, our emotions are not always logical. Um, the next question, um, what is white privilege? White privilege is not saying your life has not been hard. It's simply saying your skin color hasn't contributed to the difficulty of your life. As a white person, surely your life has been hard as anyone's life has been hard, but it is not your whiteness that is making your life hard. Whereas for most black people, it is, in fact, their blackness that makes their lives hard. I'll end that with empirical data. A 2017 study showed two people, Alec, equal resumes. The person with the white sounding name is twice as likely to get the job as a person with the black sounding name. Um, Why can black people say the N-word but white people should not? You have to understand the historical context of the N-word. Orator Frederick Douglass, late 1800s, when talking about the N-word said that his master would tell him, you can't learn how to read because reading will spoil an N-word because you are nothing worth more than a slave to your master. If you understand the context of the N-word was synonymous with dirt, synonymous with reminding black people of their position in society, then when you hear that word from someone white or even looking white, um, you can be reminded and it's reminiscent of the history there. And um, lastly, what about black on black crime in Chicago? Um, I think it was a matter of we are currently focused on a imminent illness in COVID-19. That's not to say ALS or breast cancer, or the flu doesn't matter, but let's focus on this imminent illness in COVID. In the same manner, it's not to say violence elsewhere doesn't matter, but we're currently focused on police brutality. The other major caveat is, when a black person kills a black person, historically and generically speaking, um, they will be punished. However, we've seen cops murder innocent black and brown people with no punishment. Lastly, all high violent crime is interracial. White people kill white people. Black people kill Black people. Hispanic people kill Hispanic people. So let's just dispel the notion um, that we do not care. So in whatever, three minutes, that's I gave you the good. nine minute, 27 that's a, seconds. That's pretty My good. dude, Alec, I have not been asked that question in a roughly, whoa, well, I came out with the video, I guess, almost a year ago. I have not been asked to re-answer that question in <laughs> roughly 12 months. So...
1: Something, you know, that I've I've heard you say a lot is you talk about not just the communication, but the immersion. Right. You say, yeah. I need to yeah, I need to critical. immerse myself. And a lot of people are afraid to get it wrong. So talk to us a little bit about what it means to immerse yourself. Like what's that definition for yourself?
0: So one, let me say this and then I will circle back. Alec Alaria, obviously you two are incredibly well traveled. And when you travel across the world, like I have traveled across the world. You have to know how to navigate the different terrains in which you are in so you are least offensive. Alec, if you were to venture with me to Nigeria, my parents were born and raised in Nigeria, I go there every summer. So if you were to come with me to Nigeria, Alec, and we were to go to the villages of Nigeria to visit the chiefs and to visit the different kings, um, I would prep you, Alec. And I would let you know, like, hey, when you walk inside, we should take our shoes off. Shake right hand to right hand, look right eye to like right eye. you may have to prostrate forward. I would prep you as to how to navigate the different terrain so that you would be least offensive. The problem in laria is that we do not fully understand how to navigate the different emotional terrains. And so as a result, we are so incredibly offensive. If Alec came with me to Nigeria and I didn't tell him anything, he might walk into a chief's house like he's walking into a house in Beverly Hills. Shoes on, you might just say, hey, give a handshake. You might be a bro hugger. You might give a kiss on the cheek. And that would be incredibly incidentally offensive. So since we can all realize and recognize, wait a second, There are certain cultural norms that we adhere to when we leave the country. Why can't we understand that domestically within our own? Now let me answer the question and we'll see how it ties all together. If we can all go back to high school for a second. Remember in high school, when you're studying a foreign language, your foreign language teacher would typically tell you, at least mine did, Miss Heiner. She would tell me, Emmanuel, if you want to be fluent in a language, you have to immerse yourself in the culture. Like I told you all, I was immersed in white culture growing up, fifth grade to 12th grade, predominantly white school. Then I'm immersed in black culture, playing in the National Football League for the Philadelphia Eagles, playing at the University of Texas. All the while, I'm Nigerian cultured because my parents are born and raised in Nigeria. So as a result, Larry, I'm fully fluent, if you will, in different cultural speaks. I can go talk to the exec at FedEx or I can go to the hood and chop it up with my homeboys. I'm just fully fluent. And as a result, I understood and understand why um, um, large groups of white people may think a certain way, because that's the culture in which they're growing up. I understand why large groups of black people may think a certain way. And I can also understand the disconnect in speech. Let me give it to you in this example. Three years ago, I'm running through a grocery store in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. I'm running through a grocery store, Alaria, And I'm, I was sent, sent and summoned, Alec, I don't know why they trusted me. I was sent to go find the hamburgers because we were, had a group of people. We were renting a house and we were cooking. So Elaria, I'm running through the grocery store, can't find hamburgers. So I start asking different clerks and people, hamburgers, hamburgers. They're looking at me confused. I started saying it louder, hamburgers, hamburgers. Alec, they're still looking at me confused. So finally, I pull up my phone. I go to Spanish English translation. I type in hamburgers and I see the word is hamburguesa. And so I instantly say hamburguesa. And they're like, oh, aisle four. I'm like, what the hell? I've been saying that the whole time. See, that's what happens so often in our country, right? Like white people, white brothers and sisters are saying one thing and black people are looking at them confused. Black people are saying one thing. Hey, oppression is real white privilege is real, systemic racism is real, police brutality is real. Black people are saying that and white people are looking at them confused. Then a George Floyd situation happens and black people are like, we've been saying this the whole time. Okay. But there's a lack of translation. There's a lack of communication. There is a small little barrier that is causing our communication to misfire.
1: Other than having these uncomfortable conversations, where is the translator because what i hear a lot you know blaming that is very appropriate and then there is blaming for the sake of blaming you know because and people don't even know i mean people who have nothing to do with the situation come in and and sort of say okay i'm going to roll up my sleeves and i'm going to just start blaming without listening and actually focusing on what actually yeah. has to come so where can we get to a point where we're like okay everybody let's just Listen, and we all have to stay on the right foot. It's actually
0: incredibly simple. I'm going to say something that will make people raise an eyebrow, but it's actually incredibly simple. And I thought about this a few months ago. America got it wrong when it outlawed segregation. I think that's one of America's biggest mistakes was outlawing segregation. It should have mandated integration, Alex. Right. 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 Huge difference. Right. Right. You're right. There is a huge difference. When you outlaw segregation, all you do, Alec, is you take a word down and you put it in parentheses. But we are all well read on having this conversation. And obviously, I've just written two books. The words that are in parentheses, you do not say them out loud. However, they still exist. So as you navigate America, when segregation is outlawed, the words whites only no coloreds allowed, you don't say it out loud, but it still existed in our head and in our heart. The issue is if you mandate integration, now we would have been forced to be immersed with one another. I'll end with this kind of story, analogy, parallel. Again, I'm first-generation American. In Nigeria, you don't have no dogs, you don't have no cats. You may have a goat, you may have a cow, but you won't have a dog or a cat. And so, Alaria, I grew up without any pets. As a result, when I was in my early 20s, navigating college, I would walk through a dog park with friends and i it's like, oh my gosh, that dog is so cute. My friend would be like, no, 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 like, that dog has rabies, it's a stray. Moments later, I'd see them petting a dog that looked incredibly vicious. You see, Hilaria, I couldn't decipher between a dog that was a pet and a dog that was a threat because I was never exposed to dogs. Similarly, black people can't decipher between a white person that's racist and a white person that's racially insensitive or racially ignorant. White people have the same issue deciphering between a black person that's cold and has a hood on and a black person that may be trying to conceal their identity. And it's all about exposure and immersion.
2: But do you think that it's less difficult for people of color to frame, switch themselves inside of their reality? Meaning, you embrace a culture, you want to, you want to immerse, as you say, a culture. Is it easier for everybody mm. but white people to do that? Alec, you are
0: on to something, my friend. I rarely ever go here in conversation because this is when things get very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, let's be real. I'm starting to get to know you all over the course of this conversation. We're starting to get more comfortable. So let's get uncomfortable. Um, As a black man in America, it is very hard, nearly impossible to go a day without seeing or interacting with a white person. It's near impossible just Mm -hmm. by the fact of sheer numbers. It is impossible. You go to church, white people, you go to school, white people, you go to restaurants, white people, you go to grocery store, white people. As a white person, it is not at all hard to interact with out, or to not interact with Black people, particularly dependent upon where you live. I told y'all, I live adjacent to Beverly Hills. I don't live in Beverly Hills. I live like right outside of Beverly Hills. No, Yo, you start walking through these streets of Beverly Hills, you don't really see Black people. Why do I know? Because I notice when I'm by myself. I've said this before. If I walk into a restaurant I instantly make eye contact with the black person if I see them because there's a mutual connection. It's kind of like, oh, I'm glad you made it. I don't know how you made it, but I'm proud of you. For the white people that are listening to and will watch this, let me make this example because y'all might be thinking, Acho, you sound crazy or is that racist? No, no, no. Remember when you're standing in the customs line uh, uh, to go to Puerto Vallarta, my white brothers and sisters listening to this, and you see somebody's backpack and their backpack has like a bag tag and it says like, from Minnesota or from the Sunshine State, or the Show Me State, and you're instantly like, oh, you're from Texas too, or you're from Florida, or oh, you're from Missouri, or oh, you're from Minnesota. You can instantly gravitate towards something shared when you're in a foreign land. And I often say that's what being Black can be like in this country. It can kind of feel foreign. So when you see somebody else Black, you gravitate towards something shared, which is your Blackness.
1: I think also people are afraid of the the mixing or the immersing themselves because they don't want to be labeled as culturally appropriating.
0: Well, you bring up a good thought. I'll get to that in a second. Let me address what you said first, which is the fear of mixing and the and the, and the necessity of mandating. If we were going to mandate, you would have to mandate integration at an early stage before um, rough ideas take full form. Why do I say that, Alaria? If you are a young white boy, nine, 10 years old, and you start to see your young Black friends wearing these things on their head, right, called do-rags or wave caps, before you mature into a teenager and you start to associate wearing something on your head as a Black person with being a thug or a gangster, maybe you would understand you're only wearing it to keep your hair down and to try to fashion a certain hairstyle. See, the problem is we have to start to dismantle thoughts before they fully give birth to stereotype and biases. Because by the time you're 30, you just start looking at black people wearing do-rags as thugs or gangsters because that's what the movies told you to do. Mm -hmm. So uh, if we're going to mandate, it would have to be at an early age. And also federally, we're not going to mandate integration. So parents and listeners have to take it upon themselves to mandate integration. That's that's the only way our world will actually get where we want it to. Now, as for cultural appropriation, that's the most difficult concept to explain. Literally, Um, I explained it at length in in, in my book. Um, I will try to explain it here. So. The, the fine line of cultural appropriation is citing your sources. Let me take everybody back again. College, high school, middle school. Alaria, if you were like me, in high school, when you had to type a paper, say a 12 page paper, I would use one trick. The first trick I would do is go from Times New Roman 12 point font to Times New Roman 12.5 font. And I would hope the teacher <laughs> would not notice. The second trick. Elaria, that I would use. I would try to bring in my margins ever so slightly. (laughs) Ever so slightly. Hopefully, again, the teacher would not notice.
2: The third trick, Alec, that I would use. You've made my wife smile more than I've seen her smile in the last several months, by the way. (laughs) Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That is the goal of these conversations,
0: Alec. The third trick I would use is this. I would try to quote other authors, so I don't have to write as much. But here is the trick, Alaria. If you quote another author and you don't cite your sources, that is called plagiarism. And Alec, you well know, as I well know, you can get expelled for plagiarizing. The issue is not borrowing someone else's work. The issue is borrowing someone else's work without saying who originated it. Cultural appropriation. If you want to borrow a black hairstyle, don't attribute the black hairstyle to Boderic. Understand the black hairstyle is actually a West African hairstyle, Fulani braids. Um, I talk about in my book, I believe it was Kim Kardashian who wore this Fulani braided hairstyle and attribute it to Boderic. Um I, I think about this. Late 1800s, and I hate getting historical, but sometimes it can be fascinating. Late 1800s, the minstrel shows, white people would paint their faces black, hence the term blackface and why it is so offensive. And they would take big red uh, lipstick and draw huge red lips on their face to mock and mimic the features of black people. Big mm-hmm. red lips, their big lips, big features. But why Alaria, now is lip injections, one of the most highly sought after things in California and America. The same thing that black people are being mocked, mimicked and ridiculed for is what now is influencers now are being praised for. Right. So cultural appropriation is not a matter of borrowing one's culture, but it's borrowing one's culture without citing the source.
1: So do you feel that we should be able to immerse ourselves as long as we cite? So if I go get braids and I say, well, I'm quoting this culture, it, what would that be OK or not OK?
0: Well, I'll say it like this. One, we live in a hyperly sensitive culture, hyperly sensitive, Um, to where like you almost have to go above and above and beyond just to make sure you're protected and insulated from any sort of backlash. I think if you were going to cite the hairstyle as anything, you might want to say your inspiration for it, right? Right. If you were going to post a super unique hairstyle, it would just be like, wanted to try this out. Kudos to wherever it started from for inspiring this look. But keep in mind, we're in such a sensitive culture where people just feel like getting upset that I cannot guarantee you will be insulated from backlash.
2: We grow up with perceptions. Mine were were somewhat different. And And my dad would say to me, Do you think you have the patience and the wherewithal to move through the world? If you were black, he said this to me when I was ten. If you were black, would you be Martin Luther King and look for the peace, the peaceful path, or would you be Eldridge Cleaver? And it was a long pause. My father said, "I thought so." You know, he knew the answer, which was, "I would. I'm a fighter. I would fight."
0: Yeah, I think we always wonder, like, man, the, the civil rights movement. It was so fascinating how some people have the courage to do this or do that. And I very much so thought if you've ever wondered how you would have behaved during the civil rights movement, just look at how you're behaving now. I think that's what, that's what listeners truly need to grasp. It's like, man, I wonder, would I have marched with MLK? Would, would I have been speaking? Would I have made a sign? Would I have said nothing? Would I have been quiet? Would I have just kind of gone by? Would, would I have stood by my black brothers and sisters and, and by women? Just look at what you're doing now, because if all you've done is post a black square, if all you've done is retweet a tweet, you probably wouldn't have been doing much during the civil rights movement. So you don't have to wonder how you would have acted during the civil rights movement. Look at your actions now and they will tell you a lot about who you are.
1: If there's like one thing that you want these somebody to retain from this, what's that one thing?
0: My one thing would be this. um, Do not let your inability to do everything, keep you from doing anything at all. Hilarious, so often we're like, well, racism's been around since the beginning of this country. It hasn't gone anywhere. It goes in waves. Who am I and what can I do? But the fact of the matter is, it's the little impacts that make a gigantic change. The difference between ordinary and extraordinary is just that little bit of extra. See, when I was a kid, I would used to play with dominoes, and I would stack them one in front of the other, and like a train line. And I would push the first one, Alec, and I would see them all begin to tumble down. What I've realized as an adult, Larry is that that first domino had no idea it was going to knock down the hundredth. It had one objective to knock down the one closest to it. So don't have the objective of changing the heart of a person in a neighboring state. Have the objective of changing the heart of your neighbor. Don't have the objective of changing the heart of a person in a neighboring country. Have the objective of changing the heart of a person in a neighboring cubicle. And if we can realize the small changes is what will make the large change.
1: Um. What's your one more?
0: I would say, I would say, what's one more book? What's one more book? I never thought that I would have written two books within a year. I never thought that I would have written a New York Times bestseller and then had a youth adaptation for it. So as I look I, at it, I was a sports analyst who has now become a New York Times bestselling author in a matter of 11 months. So I guess what's
2: one more book?
1: Thank you. So We're not great. worthy.
2: We're not worthy. <laughs> Thank you. Ciao. We appreciate y'all.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for hanging out with us. Make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: And share the show with your friends and help us grow. We'll talk to you guys next week.